0: Hope you'll be back with us for the evening service and hope you'll bring your Bible along. Patch will make their presentation and Brother Brian then will open the scriptures to us. So, hope you'll come and be with us in the evening service tonight, 6 o'clock. For this time, let me invite you to look in your Bible, chapter 6 of Romans, and look at the first five verses. As we are making our way through this book of the Bible, Romans, I hope that you are gaining ground. I hope that you're spiritually maturing. Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, and like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. I remind you when we come to chapter 6 that this entire chapter is really revolving around two questions. And uh, in order to understand the scriptures and and around here we like uh, very much and are very much interested in understanding what the Bible has to say. I'm I'm always concerned as I hear preachers on radio and some on television uh, that uh, they're so uh, divorced from the scriptures, actually what they say, and they come off with a lot of ideas and and what I call cute sayings, but they don't have substance from the scriptures. What we want to know around New Life Baptist Church is what thus saith the Lord, what does the Bible say, and understanding it in a way that it becomes practical in everyday life. Here in Romans chapter 6, Paul, the apostle who writes the chapter and was under, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing it. It gives us two questions. The first one is verse 1. We called your attention to it last week. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The ideal, if grace is uh, present when someone sins, as Paul has been teaching and saying, then the ideal is that the more sin, then the more grace. And if grace brings glory to God, their reasoning was, then the more we sin, the more grace would be, be on on hand and the greater the glory of God. So it was a reasoning of what we call erroneous reasoning, and error reasoning that would suggest everybody ought to go sin more. That may seem strange and absurd to you, but I was reading a history book uh, oh, several weeks back, and uh, there was an account in, a, in this book of Russian history where one of the men who was an advisor to the Russian czar actually taught the Russian people that the more you sin, the more God loves you. And it's right in the account. I mean, it's not, it's not, uh, it didn't have to be read into the text of what this historian wrote. It's written right there. Here's what the guy said. And what he said was, sin brings glory to God. And he quotes Romans chapter 6 in verse number 1. But that's only the first question. The second question that's recorded is in verse number 15. What then shall we sin because we are under, or excuse me, because we are not under law but under grace? God forbid. So both the questions relate to grace, and as we come to the verse number 15 in that question, uh, we'll explain the details of it. But the first question is answered in the ver- first 12 or the last the 13 verses after verse 1. So what we want to do today is deal with that. Remind you too, justification was taught chapter 5. Justification by faith is to simply say, Salvation is by grace through faith, and that faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. That means your baptism, your church membership, your good deeds, your good works, none of that apply toward merit or righteousness to get you in a right relationship with God. So that's what justification says. You don't take or need any of that. All you need is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in your behalf. So the justification Paul's been talking and teaching about is the justification that's by faith alone in Christ alone. So consequently, this chapter finishes, or as it did already in chapter 5, finishes justification by faith. And now he starts talking about sanctification. Sanctification is that process that takes place after you've come to faith in Christ, after you have trusted Christ and Christ alone for salvation. It's the transaction of grace that takes place in a person's life that changes them from what they were when Christ found you to what you are to be because Christ wants to use you. The ideal of sanctification is a a work of God done by the Holy Spirit in every believer's heart. The catch of sanctification, unlike justification to a degree, is that sanctification has to have your cooperation. You just won't be sanctified. You know, you don't just get saved by a strike of lightning and then by a second strike of lightning get fully sanctified. That's not what happens. There is a work of sanctification in your heart by the Spirit of God for sure. But there is also a work with which you have to cooperate. And if you don't, then the process of sanctification is sort of short-circuited. So, in this chapter, in the first thirteen verses, Paul the apostle uh, gives us a, a what I call a code word. It's found in three verses. It's first in verse number three. It's the word no. We'll talk about it uh, today in our lesson. Note in verse number three, the word no. And then the second word is in verse eleven. It's the word reckon. And in verse number thirteen, it's the word yield. Verse number three, the word no, the word reckon in verse 11, and in verse 13, the word yield. If you take the first letter of each of those words, you come up with the word cry, K-R-Y, know, reckon, and yield. That's really, and what Paul is going to say circles around that, it takes all three of those for sanctification to have a full and maturing work in a believer's life. If you don't know the Scriptures, you will never be sanctified to the degree that you should be. If you do not reckon yourself dead unto sin as the Bible teaches you are, you will never be fully matured in sanctification. If you do not yield your body as unto the Lord as an instrument of righteousness rather than unto the flesh as an instrument of the flesh, then you'll never get to sanctification the way the Bible wants you to and the way the Lord designed you to. So the point is, you need K-R-Y. You need to know, reckon, and yield. If you do that, you got a shot. And I say got a shot because it still works better that you have to cooperate in the sense of your free will being subjected. And that, of course, falls under yielding. Christian living, that is living the Christ life, life, is a matter of, of a, depending on what the scriptures teach. And therein lies one of the first problems because many people read the scriptures as if it's some obligation rather than and it's an instructional book in order to learn how to be all I ought to be. If you tomorrow get up in your devotional life and begin to read the Scriptures with a desire to know and understand that the Bible is telling you how to live the Christian life, it'll make a great deal of difference than it will if you pick up the Bible and say, Oh, by the way, I've got to mark off, uh, I've got to read Genesis chapter 5 through 7 because if I don't, then I can't mark this place in my Bible. See, there's a certain sense of people believing the Bible and reading the Bible out of a moral obligation because I'm a Christian, that's what I should do, and that's my devotions. But if you quit doing that and you start reading the Bible with this ideal, I'm come to the Scriptures to know something. I want to know what God has to say to me so that I can live the Christian life successfully. And in this case, live out the maturing process of sanctification. It'll change the way you read the Scriptures and the way you approach them. Now, with verse number 3, with that behind us, look at verse number 3. That's where we begin today. He says, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? The first thing that jumps out at you is those first three words, know you not. The Greek word, it's an interesting thing, is that it takes one Greek word to make up those three English words, agnou, eo. And that word is a word that from which we get a word agnostic. An agnostic, of course, I'm sure you know, is someone who does not know something. An agnostic. A gnostic is somebody who says, I know that ain't true. An agnostic is someone, says, I don't know. This point is, this is the Greek word, know you not. And the point made here is, is he's saying, don't you know, don't you, don't you know this truth? Don't you know that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Here's the thing. That little word know is an important one in the Christian's life because if the devil can keep you ignorant, he can keep you impotent in living the Christian life. And that's why Paul the apostle used that phrase so often. If he can keep you ignorant, he can keep you impotent in regard to your work in Christ. And you're living the Christian life and your success at it. Look in the chapter number 6. Look at verse number 6. He says in verse 6, knowing this. That's some knowledge. That's something that these people had been taught and they had gained it, understood it, embraced it. And he says knowing it. You already know this. Knowing this. Look at verse number 9. He says again, knowing that. These are things, Paul says, these are things that I have taught you, you have embraced and you understand them. And that's wonderful. Wonderful. Now that you know these things, it ought to make a difference in your life. The problem is people, one, don't know so many things about the Bible they should, and two, what they know they don't practice. You see, we we take and quote James chapter 1, verse 22, but be your doers of the word, not hearers only. And it sounds good and great, but we go right back into our old routine. We quote it, but we don't do anything about the Bible. You know, we, we have a truth laid before us, and then we walk away from it. It's like somebody putting food on the table and said, this is good food, it's nutritional, it's made well, it's prepared well, it's made in a sanitized kitchen, I guarantee you won't get sick from eating it, there it is, and you get up and say, well, that's wonderful, and leave without taking a bite. See, it's becoming a doer of the Word, not just to hear, not just say, well, the Bible's good, yeah, I like it, I think it's great, I heard a good message, or I read a good book, or it's to simply say, that's what the Bible says, that's what I'll do. And that's what this is about. Paul says, look, the problem here is, don't you know this truth? And it's very obvious you don't know this truth because you're not living in light of it. And since you're not living in light of it, Paul the Apostle then takes this section and he really whammos those guys about this whole thing of their ignorance. There's uh, an idea here that these whom Paul writes to were far enough along they should have known this truth and it should have been making a difference in their life. How far along are you, spiritually speaking? Just think for a moment. How far along are you spiritually? Uh, when it comes to decision making, do you, uh, do you have to go to somebody else or can you sit down and take your Bible in hand and, and read from the Psalms or maybe Paul's epistles and, and ask the Lord for direction and a sense of direction of what you should do in a given case or do you panic and just absolutely flip coins and decide which way we go on matters? How far along are you? How far down the road spiritually are you? Or do you grasp spiritual truth? Does it make a difference in your life? Let me tell you, this is a major problem in Bible churches just like ours. There's a sense in which we are around and handle and associate so much with Bible truth, but it tends to have so little effect on us. Let me take you to the classic of the text of Scripture about this issue. Look, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. I know we've already preached through it, and I don't intend to preach through this book again anytime soon, but let me take you back to something we talked about when I preached through Hebrews. Chapter number 5, and notice, if you would, in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 11. I believe Paul the Apostle wrote Hebrews. And here's what Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Verse 14, but strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use, who by reason of use, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Verse 1, chapter 6, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on, let us go on. Not let us sit still, not let us sit down, not let us camp here, but let us go on to maturity or the word in the Greek or the English language and translation of the King James is perfection. Let us go on to perfection, maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrines of baptism, laying on the hands of the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. Verse number three, and this we will we do if God permits. Now my saying to you about this passage of Scripture is that Paul the Apostle is saying this is a problem. This is a problem. Well, you folks who are reading this and Paul who's writing to these Jewish Christians, Paul the Apostle said we've got a problem here. The first problem he relates to in verse number 11 is dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Let me tell you, some of that kind of problem exists even today. Whether it's a New Life Baptist Church or some other church around this country, one of the sad things is that we can hear truth so often and so much that we get to a point we just yawn when we hear a great truth just yawn just that was good yeah that was good it doesn't do a thing for us it ought to shake us to the depths of our soul and it doesn't we get so used to it by the way it's just like our freedoms we just get so used to being free that we don't enjoy being free just so used to being free. I mean, if you've always been free, our young people in this room who've never heard of, thought about, talked to the older folks who've gone to war, never had any kind of that conflict, you think they appreciate freedom? That's all they've known. If it's all you've known, you wouldn't appreciate not having it. You have to sometimes lose something in order to appreciate it. And these folks, obviously, in this context in which Paul is addressing here in Hebrews chapter 5, saying, you folks just become dull of hearing. You just just old hat to you. doesn't mean anything anymore. You're so used to being saved, you forgot what it is to be lost. You're so used to having the, the, the Word of God taught and preached and shared. You don't know what it's not to have it. But that's not all he says. Verse number 12, he goes a step further and he says, for when the time ye ought to be teachers. By the way, always reading the Scriptures, look for words like should and ought Those words tell you of responsibility. And that's what verse number 12 is saying. You have a responsibility at this stage in your Christian life. You should be teaching the Word of God, not having someone spoon-food you with it. And that's what he's saying. You're dull of hearing. You've just sat around, listened, and done nothing with what you've heard. And you've done that so long that you've literally gotten to a point where you stalemated in your Christian life. Here's the thing. You see, a church was never intended that 14 people lead the whole team. You know, do all the teaching, all the preaching, all the working, all the listening. That's not what it's all about. Every Bible-believing church, the responsibility of that fellowship is that every member be involved in ministry somewhere, somewhere. That's what the body of Christ is. That's how it functions. You don't have a single part of your body that's not important and needed and necessary, and it is absolutely essential that you, if you're a member of this church or if you're a member of any church, that you be involved in that ministry and use and exercise the gift that God has given you to God's glory in that fellowship The point about that is that's exactly the illustration given us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the body of Christ. That's how it's functioning. And what happens too often is bodies don't function the way they should. First Corinthians 12 says it clearly. You're not functioning right because some of you guys aren't doing what the hands supposed to do. Some of you aren't doing what the feet ought to do. Some of you aren't doing what the head ought to do. Some of you ought to be heads and you're not heads. And some of you ought to be feet and you're not feet. And you're not getting the job done. And the body is not what it ought to be. It's not doing what it ought to do. It ought, it's not accomplishing what it ought to accomplish. Because you're sitting on the sideline acting like a dull of hearing believer. That's what he's saying all the apostles this is not good there's a responsibility that you have and at this point you should be teaching other people you ought to be guiding other people you ought to be helping other people spiritually and instead of that verse 12 says you have need that someone yet teach you by the way verse number 14 then he goes a step further after in verse 13 he's talked about use of milk and then in verse 14 he says but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age even those who by reason of use, and you ought to really get a grip on that. Wrap your hand around the word use. The ideal is to something that has been frequently not only understood, but something that has been actually appropriated. Something that I understood, and then I appropriated that. That's the ideal behind the Greek word for use in verse number 14. And what he's talking about in these who by reason of hearing it, understanding it, and then appropriating it, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. These folks have made progress in their spiritual life. They've made some ground up. They've, they've matured. They're, they're heading down the right road. And his attitude is, the Apostle Paul's is, that's exactly the way every single Christian ought to be. Verse number 1 of chapter number 6, he says, Therefore, same thing for the rest of you. Just as these have done that, that ought to be true with the rest of you. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Let us go on to this maturity. And let us, all of us, go together. You see, just like in a marriage, a good marriage, there is a leaving before there's a cleaving. If you don't leave before you cleave, I'll guarantee you, you're going to have trouble leaving mom and dad and cleaving under this one over here that God has given you. And that's an exceedingly important point. And the fact of the matter is in spiritual christian understanding of the scriptures it's exactly the same truth there's a sense in which leaving it not in the sense that you put it in a box and never use it or apply it again it's not that it's like i've understood that i've appropriated that and i've used it enough where my my muscles spiritually have been exercised and i understand that to to appropriate it into my life now i'll go into this other one over here and I'll deal with it the same way. And I'll do with this one, and then I'll learn it, I'll appropriate it, I'll use it, and then I'll move to the next one, and I'll keep on doing that until I understand what I ought to be in Jesus Christ. Now, that's what sanctification is all about. So that's why it's important to understand that before you go back to Romans chapter 6. Here's the reason. Back at Romans chapter 6, Paul the apostle, the issue that he places on the table, so to speak, is the truth that these people should have already had. They should have already had it. They should have already used it. They should have already appropriated it. And it should have been a matter that they had been matured. And evidence of maturity should have been everywhere. And it wasn't. So Paul questions them. Don't you know this simple truth? Because if you had known it, it would be evidence in your life. And it's not evidence, so I assume you don't know it. It's the same thing as this. How do we know that sin entered the world? Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Why? How, do we, or 5, 12. How do we know that sin entered the world? We have death. So just as surely as death and every person, get this again, every person that dies gives testimony to the fact that sin came into the world. Everybody, every baby that died, every 99-year-old man or woman that died, and everybody in between, that says sin entered into the world. Why? Because we sinned in Adam. Not because the baby sinned, because it didn't get a chance. We sinned in Adam. Romans 5, 12, we sinned in Adam, and so therefore death passed upon all men for that all sinned in Adam. Everybody. Now here's the thing. Likewise, there is the same deal. If sin comes, death is not far behind. Bank on it. Listen, and if you've grabbed this truth, Paul says, then this other thing of showing maturity will be right behind it. It's like a dog and a tail. You can't have the dog without a tail back there. Well, unless you got one of those you cut the tail off. I mean, be honest here. But anyway, the fact is, you have this matter that this follows this. And Paul's saying, I can tell you, you haven't got this. Don't you know this truth? Can't you go back and embrace this thing again? What is the truth he's talking about? Verse 3. Verse 3, don't you know or know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. That's the question, and that's the truth that so many people, and if I were to say that to you, you'd say, huh, everybody knows that. Everybody, everybody knows that. I mean, everybody knows you get baptized, and you're baptized into death, burial, and resurrection. Everybody knows that. That's what we say, and we say it with such glibness, I'm confident we don't understand it. Here's the deal. Sanctification, Paul the Apostle is saying, is reflected in baptism. And if you don't understand baptism, you won't understand sanctification. And, and the tie-in between these two is absolutely essential. And this morning before we leave, I hope you got it and you got it good. If we're to have victory over sin in our lives, we must first know that when Christ died on the cross, we died with Him. When you know that... And it's easy to miss this if we don't get the baptism deal because that's the word he uses in verse number 3. Jesus Christ and we're baptized into his death. Now to understand it, let me just spend just a moment on baptism just so we're all on the same page. First off, to understand the word baptized in our New Testament simply means, and the Greek word means, to dip under or to immerse. I was reared in a Presbyterian Church and, uh, you know, most of the Presbyterian South where our church was all sprinkled. You know, they'd bring a guy up in a morning service and standing here and put a towel around his shoulder and they'd pour a little cup of water on him. Our pastors at our church did not believe that. He believed in immersion. So as a Presbyterian, I was immersed. And, uh, and I don't see in, for the life of me, after I've been in the ministry at any given time, how any Presbyterian church or Methodist church or Episcopal church or anybody else can believe in sprinkling or anything else after reading what the Scriptures say or teach concerning baptism. I don't understand that. And uh, I'm glad and grateful our church, even as a young boy, taught baptism by immersion because that's exactly what this word tells us, to dip under or to immerse. That's what by baptize means. My point about that is when we baptize a believer, it simply symbolizes that that believer is identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. One Greek teacher had this, and I think he wrote it right, so let me just read what he said. He said the introduction, or he's talking about defining baptism in a believer's life. He says the baptism of a believer's life is the introduction or the placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into new union with something so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or its condition. What he's saying is that baptism is a bigger deal than what most of us think of it. He's saying that it actually is, in the the scriptural concept, it is literally saying to the world and people who observe it, we're taking you out of this old life that you lived and putting you in a new one, and this baptism is literally a burying of the old life and a resurrection of a new life, and therefore it is important. In the context of Romans chapter 6, it builds upon baptism as identifying with Jesus Christ. We used it back when we studied 1 Corinthians in chapter, I think it's chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and about verse 2 or 3 down in there. That passage Paul wrote to those Corinthians, he talked about Israel being baptized with Moses in the cloud. Well, baptized with Moses in the cloud, what in the world is he talking about? He's using the word baptized and that's where you might miss it in this context. In this context, baptism has the idea, listen, of identifying with. Identifying with. For instance, we talk about John the Baptist. Well, think about it as John the Identifier. John the Identifier, guy who went out and baptized people in order to identify them with Jesus Christ. That's what he was doing. He was saying, you want to be baptized? Do you believe Jesus Christ? Okay, fine, baptize that guy. Okay, now he's no longer who he was. He's identified with Jesus Christ. So baptism in this context should be understood as baptism being an identifier. And every time people walk through the baptistry and get baptized because they've trusted Christ as Savior, baptism is an identifier. And it ought to be something of great importance. And that's why the Jewish community, they don't care if their Jewish kids trust Christ as the Messiah, as long as they don't get baptized long as they don't go through the waters of baptism. Because the waters of baptism to them were something they understood more fully, I think. And they said, no, that's identifying you with Christ. That puts you, as it were, in His count completely. And no, we're not for that. No, no, no. You can say you believe on Him all you want to. Just don't go through the waters of baptism. Don't go through the waters of identification. Don't say, I identify with Jesus Christ. What water baptism does for us is it's just an outward symbol that we now belong to Jesus Christ. Water baptism is the outward identification of an inward reality. By the way, somebody say, well, wait a minute. If it's that important, maybe baptism does save. Maybe the Church of Christ's friends are right. Maybe salvation is by baptismal regeneration. No, it couldn't be. Why? Because in Romans 3, 4, and 5, Paul the Apostle has talked about nothing but justification by faith and salvation by grace. And he never one time said anything about baptism. In the three chapters that talk about justification by faith in the Scriptures, not a single mention of baptism is listed there. Now, if you want to talk about salvation, you can't talk about water baptism because in no context is greater and more classic about the simplicity of what justification is than Romans 3, 4, and 5. And no mention of baptism is given. So salvation is not based upon water baptism. Salvation is based on justification by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can't confuse the two of those. But what does baptism do? Uh, Baptism simply identifies us with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are folks out there, sad fact is, there are churches that mistake the symbol of the water identification as a means of salvation. They twist the whole thing around, ruin the whole concept that God had for it. But baptism by water told everybody who observed it that this person being buried in a watery grave had been set free from the bondage of sin and death and has been raised to walk in newness of life, a new life that only comes through trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Look at verse number 4. After know you not that so many of us were identified with Jesus Christ were baptized into His death or identified in His death. Verse 4 Therefore we are buried with Him in baptism unto death, like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father even so we also should walk in newness of life after his death in verse 3 of which we've already identified interesting thing here in this verse we entomb them we bury them you see it's one thing to die with him but it's another matter that you need to be entombed you need not only to die to sin you need to bury that old life and Romans chapter 4 after his death comes the burial see the fact of it is in verse number 3 the responsibility then follows in verse number 4. What's he say about the responsibility? What's the key word in verse number 4 that tells of responsibility? Just one word. What does it start out with? If I was going to talk about your responsibility based on this, what's the word? You see it? I mentioned it a moment ago. When you look through the Scriptures, look for words like ought and Should. Should. Verse number four. Therefore we are buried with him a baptism and death like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even also you should walk in newness of life. That puts responsibility back on your shoulders. See it's not going to be he's not going to do it all. He died on the cross for you. He's paid all the sin debt. He's taken care of all those responsibilities. But now it comes down to you. And it comes down to you when you walk through the baptism of waters as a believer, and you've been baptized. The moment you walk out of that baptistry, soaking wet, because you've been saved by the grace of God, you've been buried in baptism as identifying with Christ. He's saying, now nah, nah, go out and live like a Christian. So, really, the truth is, the baptistry in that context of identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ is sort of the dividing line. On the one side, even though you've been saved, the baptism of waters is the place of public declaration that I no longer pattern my life after the sinful patterns that I once lived. Now I've changed. I should not be a continuing to live as I did live in regard to my old sin. And buried is a proof of death. We do not bury people who have not died. And here's the point. If we have demonstrated to the world that we have died in Christ and to sin and to death by following the Lord and believer's baptism, then his point is, then you ought to go out and walk a life that shows it. And Paul is saying in verse number 3, that's the question on the table. I don't see the change here. I don't see you living like you, in fact, have embraced this truth. You say you've been baptized, then why don't I see a life that has changed and a life that's dead to sin and a life that is newness in Jesus Christ? Why don't I see that? And I'm afraid that's so happen to all of us. We think baptism is just a thing you do. After you get saved, you get baptized. Why do we do it? Well, we don't give all the details as Paul gave here. And we just say, well, just go do it. there's a reason you do it. It's a public declaration that you are identifying with Jesus Christ in His death to sin and all that He died for and that you are committed to walking in newness of life in such a way that everybody who sees you and everybody who knows you would look at you and say, that guy has been saved by the grace of God and his life reflects it. That's how distinct it was. And that's what Paul the Apostle is saying is what's missing here. This word, newness, in the Greek language, in the Greek word, it really defines it. Definitionally, he it says it's newness of character or newness of quality. It's not newness as age. It's not talking about just got saved. It's talking about this thing is so fresh. Everybody around it. it's like fresh bread at a bakery. You can just smell it in the air. Man, this guy's different. And that's the word he uses here. This is a newness of character. This guy is different from the get-go. His whole life gives off a fragrance of newness. And this newness is because of his relationship to Jesus Christ. You see, sin characterizes You're practicing sin day in, day out. That practice of sin characterizes your old life. When you get saved and baptized and walk out the other side of the baptistry, righteousness ought to pattern, characterize your life in Christ. That's what he's saying. You ought to leave that thing, bury that thing right here. By the way, we think of 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man being Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We think of that verse of Scripture and say, well, we're all new creatures. Well, Paul said that twice. He said it in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 15. He said that believers are creatures, new creatures. So two times in his epistles, he's saying people who have trusted Christ as Savior are new creatures. You know, one of the things and the reasons why he says they're new creatures, he's saying they're new creatures because they have a new relationship with an old lifestyle. My new relationship with this old lifestyle is I am dead to it. I am dead to it. I'm a new creature. I have a new relationship with my old lifestyle, and that is I am dead to sin. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now love in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You ought to quote Galatians 2.20 every single day. I am crucified with Christ. Because that's exactly what this passage of Scripture is saying. That's what baptism is all about. Baptism is about Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, and like Christ was crucified and died, they buried Him, and He rose from the dead with a new life and a new power and a new distinction, and everybody else around Him knew it was different. And the people who came in touch with His life and believed on His finished work, they got it, and He changed them just the way. It's like a drunk who dies. A drunk who dies cannot be enticed with alcohol. I don't care how fresh it is or how aged it is. Makes no difference to him. He's not interested because his senses that once upon a time were alive to it have now since died to it. And therefore, he has no interest. He can't see it, he can't smell it, he can't taste it, and he has no desire for it. That's exactly the illustration of being baptized. Once you've trusted Christ as Savior and salvation is secure, then baptism says to the world, I am dead to that. I have no interest in that. And I am being dead in the waters of baptistry. I am being buried in them. And to testify to that fact, that's what he's saying. And my saying it doesn't make it any more for you or me or anybody else, but the fact is... It makes a fact that Paul the Apostle was saying to these people, You've been baptized, but I don't think you understood what he was about. Know you not that as many of you were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? Don't you understand why, why He was buried? He was buried because He died. And He died because of sin. So you have trusted Him as Savior. You have died to those sins. You have been buried in the waters of baptism. Therefore, don't have anything to do with the sin. That's what he's teaching them. And he's saying, You guys just don't, you just aren't getting it. You don't understand it. You're not getting a grip on it. Let me take you to another of what Paul wrote. This time it's in the book of Ephesians. When Brian said this morning, Turn to Ephesians 2, he scared me. I uh, thought he'd get dangerously close to this text. Not that I'm going to give an exposition of it. But the point is, I thought he'll just repeat this and I'll have to repeat it again. And they'll think we really conged up on him. But here, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this. It's the first 10 verses. Listen and parallel to what we're reading in Romans chapter number 6. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul said, And you hath he, what's the word? quicken you know what the word quicken means it means made alive it means to energize with life you who he hath energized with spiritual life are you who he hath quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the, the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience by the way what's the two word phrase in there that would tell you that that's not the way it is that's the way it was what is it time passed don't miss the words you know when you read the scriptures read all the words and read them carefully he says this is the way you were that's not the way you are and that's his whole point again he's saying look I know how you lived before you walked in the course of this world you did just what the world did you lived like the world did you listened to them you, you watched them you observed them you participated in their activities you did all that that's time passed that's on the other side of salvation that's on the other side of the watery baptism verse number two now verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation, that's manner of life, in what? Time passed in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Verse 4, but God. Boy, now you're going to come to a change. That's the way it was. Then God shows up on the scene. Verse number 4, but God who is rich in mercy and his great love wherein he loved us. What's his point? In that condition, that's how he loved you. Somebody was walking with your nose in the air toward everything that the world had to offer and all the sin that it had already propagated and you had your heart in that, you had your passion in that and yet He loved you in that condition. God who is rich in mercy and loved you when you were so unlovely and when you were a filthy, low down sinner heading for a devil's hell. He says, God loved you. Verse number five, even when. Now that makes it worse. That's like digging a foot down. Then He says, oh, go down two more feet. Even when you were dead in sins Hath He quickened us together with Christ By grace you're saved Verse number 6 And He hath raised us up together And made us to sit in heavenly places Or sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus That in the ages to come Remember we have talking about time past Now we're talking about ages to come That's the, sort of the way the Christian life is There's some things that happen back there There's what's happening right now And then there's things going to happen over there and he's saying back there, so here's what you were. Then all of a sudden God showed up on the scene, changed your life forever. And then there's going to be some things in ages to come. What he's going to do is show you the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward you through Christ Jesus. I think what it means is you and I don't have a clue of all that we have in Christ Jesus. And someday he's going to show it all to you. And he's going to show it all to you like somebody who has a treasure that he keeps in a vault that nobody ever gets to see. And one day you're going to have sense enough and smarts enough, spiritually speaking, out of the vaults of heaven. He's going to bring out all this great goodness and kindness that he did for you without your knowledge. And he's going to put it on the table. And you're going to sit there with your mouth dropped to the floor saying, I can't believe that. You mean you did all that while I was down there doing all I was doing and behaving and acting in such. You did all that. That's what I was doing. That's what it says, the exceeding greatness of His mercy and all this wonderful thing that He did for us and had toward us, showed toward us. Verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should, what's the word, walk in them. You remember what happens after you come out of the baptistry and you've been, been saved and you go to the baptistry and you're, you're wet and you come out of that watery grave? What's the thing that you're supposed to do? Well, the Scriptures are very clear. In verse number 4 of Romans 6, He said that we should walk in newness of life. You see, what His point is, if you walk the same way you always walked, you miss something somewhere. If salvation were real and you understood what baptism is, then when you come out on the other side, the implied thing is after you've identified with Jesus Christ, there ought to be a newness about your life that everybody would know and take note of. And now it's an interesting thing. Verse number 5. He says in verse number 5 of Romans 6, "...for if we have been..." And that's an if. Note that carefully. Circle the if. "...for if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection." The if is important because it says that what he's talking about may not be so. There very well may have been in the Roman church and the people Paul wrote, people who thought they were saved, people who had done all the things that spiritual, religious, church-going people did. But depths of their heart, there was really no salvation. They had learned a how-to book. They had followed the rules. They'd done everything that the people who are saved do. And everybody who saw them thought they were because they showed up at church they had a Bible they, they did the things religious people do and and they just they, these folks are saved. Paul comes back as if almost to question the whole process for if we have been planted makes that thing a suppositional possibility that it may not be true with you so if it isn 't true with you the thing is true today that you can make it true you can trust Christ you can realize it 's not by works of righteousness which you have done but according to his mercy he saved you but that takes calling upon the name of the Lord, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Romans ten nine 9, that, that confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So it's not hard and it's not something that only a select few have. If God has convicted your heart of your sin and your need of Christ, then he can draw you by that truth to himself. So, I say to you what Paul is saying here, if these people have, and I believe in the context with these, Paul, I believe, is assured of their salvation. I don't think he doubts their salvation, but it is a word that says, if it's true here, then this is true. What he's talking about being true here in this context is about resurrection. So, he says, if you have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. If you've got a grip on the fact that when Christ died on the cross, you died with Him in the sense that He died for your sins and Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. If you've got that, then what Paul is saying, there are two things here. One, I do believe it talks in part, maybe as a secondary application, to a guarantee of a future resurrection. I think that's included. I don't think that's all of it, but I think that's included. I think the primary application in verse number 5 concerning this assurance of this resurrection, however is resurrection life power right now. I believe what he's talking about in verse number 4 when he talks about us being walking in newness of life after we have identified with Jesus Christ in salvation and identified with Christ in the watery baptism, I think what he is saying is, in context, he is saying fine because as you've identified with Christ in salvation and your baptism in the water identified you publicly so people see that I believe with all my heart what he's saying is that also guarantees you his life in you and that's what gives you the power to live the newness of life as a believer the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his suffering that's where it comes from. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were, empowering us who have identified with Him in salvation and in publicly identified with Him in watery baptism. He says, I'll provide the power. I'm looking for the person. You be the person who trusts Christ as Savior, and I'll provide the power so that you can live a successful, resurrected new life in Jesus Christ. So that takes away from the audio saying, look, I just can't live the Christian life. No, you're right, you can't. You need resurrection power. See the point here, and this is important, is in verse number 4 where he said, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead. Now notice how it came in verse 4, by the glory of the Father. Literally it says by the reflection of God's power, the Father's power. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead according to or in reflection of the Father's power. The fact is, what he is saying then in verse number 5, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will be issued to you so you can live a Christian life in a new way. Live it in such a newness that the world can see in you the Lord Jesus Christ, a reflection of who He is and what He is and what He's all about. And his attitude is, in Paul's case here, the same power it took to raise Christ from the dead is the same kind of power it will take for you to live the Christian life. It can't be lived on its own or on our own. We shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Interesting to me that at salvation we're given a Christ life. We're not given an old remodel life. We're not, you know, He doesn't take this life and say, well, let me see what I can do to remodel this thing or make this thing run better, to look better, to work better. Uh, That's not what He says. He says. He gives you a new life in Christ. And that's what we live. And that's what you and I are. We're not to take the old life because all through the epistles of Paul, he talks about putting off the old man, putting away the old man. He keeps constantly referring to us being a new person, a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We're new. We're not something remodeled of the old. And that's why all through the Scriptures, it's talking, teaching, and explaining to us that when we died with Christ on the cross, we were to be then buried to that. And we're not anymore to look back on that lifestyle as being something acceptable in our new life. Interesting to me, sanctification rests on the same foundation and proceeds from the same exact source as justification by faith does. And that is namely our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, our identification with Jesus Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. This morning, I ask you a simple question as we close, and it's a simple one. Where are you headed? Have you come to a place in your life where you've trusted Christ as your Savior and knew you were not saved and you trusted Christ as your Savior? I ran across an article this last week. It was in a magazine across my desk when somebody was asked this question, where are you heading in your life? The fact of the matter is, this was under this heading, and it said there was a a case in 1994 in the Miss USA pageant. And... uh, this uh, contestant was asked this question. Quote, If you could live forever, would you and why? If you could live forever, would you and why? Now remember, this is asked in 1994, Miss USA pageant to a contestant. It was directed to Miss Alabama. And this is what Miss Alabama said. I would not live forever because we should not live forever because if we were supposed to live forever then we would live forever but we cannot live forever which is why I would not want to live forever now if that's not the most googly goose thing I ever heard in my life I never heard anything worse unless it would be Chappaquiddick's explanation with old Teddy now Teddy didn't get through that very well so I'd say about the same thing but here's the thing that's what happens to people. When you start asking them about eternal consequences and responsibility about life and the way you're living, it, people start to run over words, stumble over them. You know, why I And that's exactly what this lady has done. What a perfect opportunity if she had known Christ to say, yes, I'll live forever. But not by any works of righteousness which I have done, but according to His mercy, He saved me and changed my life and gave me a home in heaven and gave me abundant life even here on this earth. The problem with that is, obviously... Of assuming her answer was from her heart, she has no such conviction, no such assurance, and no such certainty. So when she dies, Miss America or Miss USA pageant contestant from Alabama in nineteen ninety four, unless between then and now she has professed faith in Christ, there'll be a USA pageant contestant in hell. Isn't that sad? To go through everything people go through to make a name for themselves in this world and realize or not realize that that's not the most important thing. most important thing is to know about eternal life, living forever and living a successful Christian life now. I've used it often. In fact, when I go to, uh, to the chapels of Christian schools to speak, I almost always use this because it always has captivated me since I read the Alice in Wonderland adventure. I cannot get away from the fact of when... Uh, The story is, as Alice was going through your roads, you know, the roads there and so forth, and she looks up and here's this cat, you know, that uh, this Cheshire cat that sits in that thing. She said, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And that cat said, that depends on where you want to get to. I don't really care much about where, Alice said. Then he said, it doesn't matter which way you go. And that is so absolutely true. There's a fact of the matter is that people are going where they're going because they, they really don't know what they want to do. Just the last few weeks, someone in the church was sharing with me a circumstance of witnessing to someone. And as they began to talk with him, the person popped up with a statement that they really didn't care where they spent eternity, really didn't care. And uh, as the conversation went on and went further, it became very evident that the person just had no clue all what the Bible teaches about what waits just outside of this door. And this person said, the first thing I thought about well, was the, the point you make sometimes about talking about death and dying. A member of our fellowship then began to say, you do realize, my friend, that everybody dies. You know you you, you know that. You can read the paper, and one out of one going to die. You understand that. And, then, and this person said, you know, I have not thought about that. And just for almost a wishful moment, this person began to think about their own, I guess you'd say, destructibility and their own frailty of life, how quickly this thing could be over. I thought this week of the young man. I don't know him. Never met him in my life. I've only read what you've read and what you've heard on television about this young football player, Tillman, who, who gave up a lucrative contract with the NFL and went to fight in Iraq and, and was killed. Now we find out he was killed by friendly fire. didn't make it any easier and it didn't make him any less heroic. He went and he fought and he died. But I thought to myself you know if this young man if all he was thinking that in going he could pay a debt to his family and he did suggest that in one statement I heard that he, you know he had had all these benefits and he had suffered none for them. He had paid no price for the freedoms. And he thought it was time that he did something. So he wanted to get off his uh, duff and get out there and do something. It would make a difference. And he gave straight up statement of that fact. That's what I'm doing. But then he added in one conversation and in one article someone read that he hoped also he'd get the smile of heaven. I'm afraid, my friend, if you go to die in a war to get the smile of heaven, I don't think it'll be coming. You see, what I think he's trying to say, I'd like to get God's assurances that when I die, and I'm sure I will die, I just want to make sure I make it to heaven. There's nothing you can do, even dying in the war in Iraq, that'll get you into heaven. Jesus Christ has done everything that is necessary to be done in order to save every human being that has ever been born or ever will be born. He paid it all, all to him we owe. All we have to do is in simple childlike faith come to believe on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the price He paid for our salvation, and trust Him and Him alone for that. That's salvation. It's not works of righteousness which we have done. It's not efforts that we put forth. It's not saying, okay, I trust Him and then keep trying to stay saved. It's not that either. It's completely trusting the Lord Jesus Christ with your life, your salvation, and your eternity. If you're resting in that, and you do so according to the Scripture, heaven is yours, and a hope should be yours today also. If it's not, though, you ought to come today and let someone take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be sure of heaven and an abundant life here and now, and make dead sure you live the Christian life the way Paul, even in chapter 6, outlines it to be lived. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word, and thank you for the direction that we gain from it. Thank you for its directives to us thank you for its admonitions to us and even in this passage today are the things that we should things we should be doing things we ought to be the person we ought to be i pray help us to take this to heart help us not to get so accustomed to hearing bible truth or reading bible truth that it has no impact on our lives anymore please deliver us from such a, a problem such a dullness of hearing And I do pray for any man, woman, boy, or girl here today who may lack the assurance of salvation, who may lack that confidence that Christ is theirs as personal Savior. And I would pray that today in this service they would allow someone to take a Bible and show them from the Scriptures how they can be sure of heaven and also of an abundant life, fulfilling life, even here and now. So as we come to the invitation and sing, Just as I am, may we come just that way, just as we are, and open and receptive and yielded to your will. So speak to us, those who ought to come for salvation and those who ought to come for baptism or church membership or just to pray. Whatever the need is, I pray by your spirit, you draw them to yourself. We depend upon you to accomplish now what we can't. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to 282 if you need a hymn book. We sing the first stanza of Just As I Am, and if God has spoken to your heart and you need to make a decision based on what He is holding you accountable for this morning, then let me urge you to come at this invitation and allow someone to counsel you concerning God's Word, the message that you've heard, the truth that you've seen, and the conviction that God's Spirit has brought. If you'll do that, then leaving the services for you would be a fulfilling and also a monumental kind of decision for this hour. But it needs to be made now, not put off, not wait till later, not tomorrow or next week, but right here, right now, since God has spoken. So if God has spoken to your heart, please comply as we sing. 282, verse 1, together please. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Come? Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and your attention. Thank you for being with us today. And I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight. 5 o'clock choir practice, 530 men's prayer, 6 o'clock for the service. Again, final presentation of Patch for this session. Brother Brian will be speaking. And then we'll have a VBS meeting downstairs after the service. So please, hope you'll come being in all the services today. Let us pray. Our Father, again, we're grateful for your word and thank you for the what we've heard in Sunday school this morning and again here in the worship service and even now preparing for a evening service looking forward to that time with the patch presentation and then a message from your word. We pray now that you will take these truths we've heard this morning and I pray that you'll drive them deep into our hearts and help us not to be the same for having heard them and help our lives to reflect the glory that you desire to be showcased in our lives. And I do pray that we would depend upon the newness of life and the power to live that life of the resurrection power that you provide, Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray also that you give each of us the insight of reading your word and help us then to be doers of the word, not just hearers, and help us not to be so dull of hearing that we miss the great truths you want to share with us. So help all of us here at the New Life Baptist Church and all of our guests and friends to be Bible readers. Help us to read the word every single day. Help us not to give excuses, but help us to give time to it. And then help us to seek your face in prayer. Help us to walk with you, live for you, and die for you if need be. Again, thank you, Father, for the sacrifices that have been made on behalf of our country. Those soldiers, men, and women who have fought and in some cases died for the cause that we each here this morning have liberty to worship as we wish and desire and feel free to do. I pray bless the veterans even in our services of this day. Bless their lives in some way, somehow. Give to them an appreciation for the time they serve for our country. Father, we pray you reward them in a special way. Bless now as we leave this place, give safety and protection, and bring us back to the evening service with the same safety. And we are grateful for the grace of God that abounds in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Until we meet again, you're dismissed.